The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. There's six books in the series, and they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. Had Terry Williams come by today, and Terry's a guy that has a lot of knowledge of the Alaska culture. He spent the last 40 plus years living in Skagway, dealing with Native American, Eskimo, and gives us an insight of what is happening in the world of their culture, especially with uh, new regulations with marine um, mammal um, and uh, ivory usage and that kind of stuff, which really is affecting that group of carvers tremendously. Very interesting and enlightening uh, talk with Terry, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. Got Terry Williams here. Terry, I'm glad you came in. Thank you. Good to see you, Mark. Yeah. How long have we known each other? I was just trying to figure I that out. I think almost 40 years. Oh, God. It can't be. Is it really? Yeah, oh, when yeah. we used to do the Indian art shows. Uh-huh. I always see you collecting the best baskets ahead <laughs> of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we at the beginning of 40 years, I can assure you they weren't the best baskets. <laughs> They're the ones I could afford, probably. Yeah, we were both in that category. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you do a podcast like this, and I've known you 40 years, but I don't really know the backstory at all. So I want to find out the backstory. So where did you grow up, Terry? Oh, I grew up in Seattle, and um, I was invited to Alaska to be a resident artist for a gallery there, and that's how I ended up in Alaska. So let's just start with Seattle. So you grew up in Seattle. What did your mom and dad do? Oh, my mom was uh, a dental assistant, and uh-huh. then when she had a couple of kids, she became a full-time house mother. And my father was a civil engineer, and he worked for the city engineering department. So, and, you, and did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah. Um, to my mother's aggravation, I had only brothers, and she always wanted a daughter. So she was pretty happy when we had a daughter. Uh-huh. How many brothers do you have? Two brothers. Uh-huh. So you grow up in Seattle. Yes. And what, what time frame was, was this? Is this like the... Oh, uh, the 60s early and 60s. early 70s, I moved to Whidbey Island, which is on Puget Sound. You keep wanting to go up there, but I'm not letting you get that far that fast. Okay, I want to yeah. find more out about Seattle. Oh, yes. Yeah, so you, you did you have an interest in art or Native American art when you were a kid? It's interesting because when I look back at it, even in grade school, I was making masks inspired mm. by Indian art, like paper mache masks and painting them with rainbow colors and stuff. And my art teachers thought I was pretty interesting. And I was really lucky. My parents chose our neighborhood because we had the best schools in Seattle, which was one of the best school districts. Mm -hmm. And we had some really uh, professional quality artists for art teachers and also professional musicians for for band director and stuff. And I focused mostly on music and art. Hmm. So they would allow you to actually focus and take more classes in 
music and art in high school? Yeah, I, I was. I tended to be an overachiever, and I had a high GPA. And by the time I was in high school, I had as many as five independent classes per day. Wow. So I barely had to show up for school. And those independent classes were all art-related? Yeah, and science. <laughs> I did research, you know, collecting um, ferns and mosses and all the sort of things nature boys do. Mm -hmm. And I had a great childhood. I was really lucky. Um, grew up in really good schools. And I had my best friend was a bug collector, and mm -hmm. we used to do a lot of insect related things and artwork ab about nature. Mm -hmm. What were you doing, drawing and painting? or Drawing mostly, yeah, and, and some painting. Did you um, know Bill Gates by any chance? Was he in that system? He was in our Cub Scouts. He was, yeah, really? He, yeah, he <clears> lived <throat> only a few blocks away. We lived on the other side of the tracks. Our neighborhood was real middle class, university professors and stuff, but on his side of the valley was a lot of the important business owners and and he he obviously got into computers at an early age at, at that age i thought computers were the weirdest geekest thing you could do and <laughs> i never wanted to get get around them but he really made a a business of it obviously yeah so he was actually in your cub scout Good. Yeah, yeah, he was a couple of years younger. He he was actually closer to my brother's age. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> uh my brother still remembers him pretty clearly. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a really interesting time to grow up in Seattle. Yeah, it sounds like it from just what I read of, you know, on Bill Gates and how they had computers and things that other people didn't have. So you had that opportunity, but it just wasn't your thing. Yeah, the computer class was only about a half dozen guys. They're probably all billionaires now. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, not too many kids were interested in that at that stage. So I was more interested in artwork already. And so when you graduated high school, what year was that? 69. Okay, so you're graduating right in the first draw of the Vietnam War for the Yes, that lottery. was a close call. I um, got a, a, a number, a draft lottery number that would have required me to go, but I was able to um, go to university with a, a education deferment. What was your number, do you remember? 132. Oh, yeah, that's a goer. Yeah, and then what happened is right at the end of my university career, they uh, decided to only call up to 125. And um, I dropped out of school, and I was available for two months, and that was the end of my availability. It was a catch-22 I learned from my father that um, if you, if you um, dropped your deferment, you would only be available for the rest of that year. But then right after that, Nixon ended the war. So yeah. I was lucky not to go. Um, I have many friends that went. Yeah, and did some of them not make it back? Some of them not, and most of them are ill now from uh, being exposed to Agent Orange and other carcinogenics. Do you remember the sitting around that night when they did the pull, when they did the blue pilling, pulling out the blue pills of the, of the numbers? Uh, yeah, I actually was at a party, and I drank so much I barely drove home. I, it was really a hazardous drive back to my parents' house. Yeah, I was pretty worried about um, about having to go. Yeah, so you when you went into college, you were an art major, 
Um, I, I change majors almost every semester. <laughs> I started in pre-med and I got to biochemistry mm -hmm. and I decided that I wasn't going to be a doctor because biochemistry was over the top for me. Uh -huh. And then um, I went back to playing music. I was uh, trained to be a, a professional classical musician. And what, what instrument? On the trumpet. Uh -huh. And I did that for a little while, and I realized that I wasn't probably going to make a living doing that. Most musicians, you either have to be a, a rock star or you're a school teacher, and then you have to be used to humble income and lifestyle. So I, I switched to art, and I really got into it, and I really took off. And um, within a couple of years, I was self-employed as a silversmith and a graphics artist. So were you collecting Indian art yet at this point in time? Uh, my father was a stone artifact collector, and so was my grandfather. So you and I have that in common that it ran in our families. Yeah. So did they collect lithics like axes and arrowheads, arrowheads and things and like that? that and did you go thing. collect those as a kid with them? Yes. We, that's, that's interesting you would ask about that because some of the most fun things we did as children is um, collecting arrowheads and trade beads on the Columbia River before it was dammed up. Mm. Um, in the 50s, the Columbia River had very few dams. I think Grand Coulee was one of the few. And it wasn't such a breadbasket. It wasn't such an agricultural area. And um, in the late 50s and 60s, they started building the dams that provided irrigation to all of eastern Washington. And then it became one of the biggest apple exporters in the world. But um, in those days, you could just walk around on gravel bars and sandbars on the Columbia River, especially around Vantage, which is right in the middle of eastern Washington, and, and pick up beads and, and arrowheads. And my dad had screens, and we used to run the, the sand through screens. And you could get quite a few arrowheads. When he retired from collecting stones, my father had 50 frames of arrowheads, wow. Columbia River arrowheads. And uh, beads, tell people about the beads, because a lot of people wouldn't understand what a trade bead was and how it would it, it end up in the river. The, in the yeah, Columbia. there was a few um, ones that were imported made out of glass. Mm -hmm. But mostly they had what we called wampum, which was little shell beads that they made probably with drill bows. Themselves. Yeah. And um, they must have had zillions of them because they were like, some percentage of the sand. And if you crawled around, you could see them and just pick them up. And that was something I enjoyed doing. One of the reasons there was so much archaeological remains and evidence there is um, before the, I guess it was the measles epidemic that wiped out the natives in eastern Washington. There's 150,000 natives living on the Columbia River. And probably most of their graves were you know, near the river and the sand, in the sandbars. And most of the villages were right on the river because most of their uh, food came from salmon runs and mm -hmm. they, they, they were big fishermen. And then when they built the dams, unfortunately, it, it uh, covered all, all the evidence, mm. archaeological evidence. So, And which, which uh, Native American groups would have been in there? Uh, most of them are now um, in northeastern um, 
Washington, and you have the Nez Pierce is one of the big ones, and Yakima yeah. was a was a big one. There was quite a few. They were what we call inland Salish, mm-hmm. and they they did um, their material culture was real similar to the coast. Their baskets, for instance, uh, for interest, were re- very similar to the cedar cedar group baskets mm-hmm. on the coast. And so you so you started collecting with your dad, and you developed your own collection. Do you still have that collection of beads and lithics and things? A lot of them got lost when the state got broke up. Um, I inherited the stone artifacts from my father, and um, I traded and shared them with people, and I, I still have uh, some of them. Uh-huh. And it, it was really interesting when I found out when we were doing um, – genealogy about my grandma's family that we had uh, native traders all the way back to Quebec in the old days. So I, I guess that interest ran in our family for, mm. for generations. Yeah. Lucky for me, I really made my life around it. Yeah, but at the time you were in college, you really weren't considering buying and selling Native American art or doing that as a living? My my goal was to be a rock star like the Rolling Stones, the trumpet guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then that didn't work out, and you moved to, into the art field, and and you were did, were you getting a degree in art? Uh, no, I was more interested in being professional artist, and that's when I um, I realized I had a jewelry shop. I started at the Pike Place Market in Seattle. I was one of the first three silversmiths at the Pike Place Market. Um, what year was this? That was in the '69, early '70s. So um, right then, the Native American craze was really kind of going for jewelry, right? Yeah, and it was fascinating the history of the market because it was previously a farmers market, and Seattle was growing in leaps and bounds, and it it became um, King County, the county that Seattle's in, was was a real breadbasket, and then around that time, the growth and the industry got so big, there was no more farmers mm. in King County, and uh, about the only people that still sell uh, agricultural stuff at the Pike Place Market are people that grow flowers, mm. and they're recent immigrants, and um, what happened was um, all the day tables where the farmers used to bring their produce slowly started turning into arts and crafts. And I was lucky enough to be one of the first three silversmiths to sell silverwork at the public market. And it was a great opportunity for learning a career. This is 1970? Yeah, early. So you're like 19. Yeah, I was uh, really young. And and, um, in those days, you could live uh, in downtown Seattle. I had what I called a penthouse in a tenement. That was $35 a month, and it was <laughs> had a beautiful view of downtown, and I could pay for my rent for a whole month by selling silverwork at the day tables at the market. And so you're making br- bracelets and things like this? Yeah, and rings and pendants. And were they Indian style, Native American style, or what were a they? A friend of mine gave me an early um, issue of Arizona Highways that had um, all the, the early pawn jewelry turquoise jewelry and I started copying that stuff and I took a a couple semesters of jewelry classes and because of the market and because of my exposure to the the turquoise jewelry I immediately became successful enough to support myself 
mm-hmm. something I never quite managed as a musician. Yeah. And um, that was a real lucky turn of events. And I, I figured out uh, by setting up uh, three days a week during the holidays, I could save enough money to travel around the world um, after New Year's. And I started going to Latin America and South America and eventually to Asia. So you dropped out of school. Yeah, um, when the war was over, my university career was done. <laughs> and that was directly related to, okay, I'm safe now? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I was ready to be self-employed as an artist. And that became pretty successful for, for an artist. And how long did you do that, make silver? Well, silver still kind of doing it, but um, I did it for probably about 30 years, but it became a really big deal when I got invited to Alaska. Uh-huh. So, but before you go to Alaska, so you're, do you go down to, where all do you go? You go to Mexico or Central America and these places? Yes, I spent um, five months in Latin America. On my, I went for five weeks, mm-hmm. and um, I just had so much fun. I stayed for five months, and <laughs> I came home, and Everything that was in my apartment got distributed to my friends, and everybody thought I died and was never coming back. <laughs> so they were pretty surprised to see me again. And and um, I collected artifacts down there. My interest in uh, stone and and other prehistoric artifacts uh, turned towards uh, Latin America, and I collected that sort of. And were you buying material. and selling this material at this time, or just collecting it? I was mostly buying and selling um, um, textiles from South America and keeping the artifacts. Uh So Uh, like Bolivian textiles and things like that? Yeah, people were, in those days, uh, wearing ethnic clothes was the height of vogue, and we could bring back, uh, you know, wheatfields and various um, costumes and and bags, shoulder bags. Were these old clothes or new clothes or both? Uh, I like to specialize in antique ones because they were way better quality and more collectible. They they were still really inexpensive um, in those days. Now they're they're quite valuable, as you know. Yeah. So you do that for five months. You're down in Central America, and then you come back. Do you did you ever get any of your clothes and things back from your friends when you showed up? Uh, no. The the sad part was as I collected books. Um, my father used to give me a blank check at the beginning of every semester of university, and I could go to a university bookstore and buy any book I wanted. He he thought I was buying books for my classes, but I was <laughs> buying books on every imaginable thing. I had very eclectic interests. I had a really good library of ethnographic books and religious <laughs> books. I was uh, amateur, you know, uh, religious student, uh-huh. and um, all of them got distributed. Some of them floated back, but I think most people that got them probably made better use of them than I did. <laughs> the, and either reading them or and selling them, and yeah, something. both. Yeah. yeah, so that so, was pretty good. So you come back from Central America, and you're 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 selling silver. You're making silver. You're selling these textiles, and you're. In your mid-20s at this time? Yeah. And so then what happens? I got invited by another silversmith from the public market to share a shop on Queen Anne Hill. And we had this little shop in kind of a 
neighborhood strip mall, and it became pretty popular and uh, pretty well known. What was the name of that shop? Well, it was our names. His name was Charlie Anders, and mine was Terry Williams, and we just had our names on it. He became pretty well known because he was a coppersmith, which was a really rare thing, and he was also um, a really good cook, and mm. and um, professional cooks used to come and buy copper pans from him and have him restore his copper pans. So I, in a little bit, I rode on his coattails, but then... We became, we both became too big to share the same shop, and mm -hmm. I moved next door, and then I had mm -hmm. my own shop, mm -hmm. and uh, I had that shop for about three years, and something uh, fairly horrible happened, but it it uh, turned into a good turn of events. Um, my shop was broken into, and I lost all my South American artifacts in 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 uh, um, in a theft and in a burglary. And I decided that I didn't want to live in the center of town anymore. And that's when I, I moved to the islands in Puget Sound and became a recluse and really got into doing my own work. And I, I really improved in leaps and bounds when I wasn't running a shop. So when you say a recluse, were you literally out in the back where no one, I mean, no electricity, running water or? Um, I had power, but no water. I was in an old cabin in the woods um, near the beach. And we lived mostly for the first uh, couple of years, um, fishing and digging clams and gleaning orchards. And you said we, were you, did you get, was it, did you have a wife or a girlfriend? Yeah, I had I had a girlfriend who eventually became my wife, and um, she she's an artist now too, and um, it was pretty fun. I I enjoyed it, but then there was a, a point when when uh, we started having children, and we realized we needed a place that was less primitive. But the the amazing thing was for me that um, I only went to town once a week, so I was totally focused on doing my artwork and improving my artwork, and um, I I realized I was getting pretty good pretty fast. And there was times when I felt like I was almost channeling historic artists or something because it it was almost like the Work was improving at a rate that was inexplicable. It was exciting times. And you're so, and at this time, you're digging clams. You're, are you growing your own food too, as well? Oh, I was in deep woods and uh, we were surrounded by old growth trees, and that meant we could heat with wood. And we had a wood cook stove, uh -huh. everything was wood related, which is traditional for that part of the world. And that, that was pretty fun. It's like uh, going back in time or something. Yeah. So, you did that for three years? Yeah. And then um, my wife uh, decided we were moving to downtown Coopville, and we became uh, residents of a uh, historic town, not unlike the one I live in now. And did, so did you have a, a child by that time when you moved? Yeah. My son came, and then... We thought we were done, and then a couple of years later, we had a daughter. So, and then we had a match set, and that was enough. <laughs> we had to slow down after that. And so, how would you, when you're living out in these woods by yourself and your wife, and you're basically um, growing or gathering your food, 
but you're making your art. You're doing silversmiths. You're making jewelry. Mm-hmm. Would you go in and sell this? I mean, once a week to the townspeople, or how did you That's get right. sales? Um, you still I need knew, money. Uh, the best galleries in Seattle from my previous career, and uh, my I could just go once a week to Seattle and sell what I produced for the week and raise enough money to go home and live comfortably. Was it still Indian-style jewelry? Yeah. In fact, it it took a, a turn towards Northwest, and I started doing less Southwest-style. And the market was fairly flooded in the 70s. Um, it was going real well, but there was lots of good stuff, and it was getting harder to compete. And somebody gave me the Bill Holm book called uh, Northwest Coast Indian Art and Analysis of Form, and it showed uh, historic bracelets made by Clinkets and Haidas uh, with the totemic designs engraved. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I had a friend that was a uh, uh, teacher's assistant to Bill Holm, and um, he was already doing these things. His his name is Steve Brown, and he became a important art or artifact restorer and professor and and ethnography of Northwest Coast Indians Mm -hmm. also. And um, I borrowed his, he was already doing engraving um, with Northwest Coast Designs, and I borrowed his tools for a weekend, and I made my own copying his. And it wasn't long before I was able to engrave things. And then I got introduced to professional tools, and all of a sudden the quality and the Mm-hmm. volume of work took a big leap and I started getting pretty successful doing that. And you'd sign him what, like with your name? Terry? Yeah, 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 Terry Williams. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is there a market, you know, specifically for your work out there? Have you seen it come out in the resale market? There's that people kind of that used to come in my shop in Alaska and say, I have one of your bracelets, uh-huh. you're famous. And I go, well, I don't know about that, but that's nice you have one of my bracelets. Uh-huh. Now I've slowed down, I would like to collect my work back. And that seems to happen to artists a lot where uh, Bill Holm, for example, he's considered the foremost authority on Northwest Coast Indian art. He did his own artwork early in his career. And then he quit. I think maybe somebody asked him to quit because he was so good. And he went around trying to collect his work back. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to get to know him and, and, and meet him. And he was one of my mentors. But Steve Brown is still one of my major mentors. He he's our age. He's a young guy, but he got <laughs> that doesn't interested. compute. He's a young guy. He's our age. <laughs> well, yeah, he he started as a young guy. <laughs> Bill Holm was a really special guy. Love sharing information. It was really lucky he discovered Northwest Indian art because he had such an anal- analytical mind. He was able to re rediscover uh, the design rules that totemic art was designed and made by in the 19th century. Um, because of cultural disintegration, um, largely because of missionaries and other people that came and um, changed their lifestyle so radically, forbid them from doing traditional art or speaking their language, um, that, that sort of artwork was almost uh, gone. Mm. And because of Bill Holm and the books he wrote and the and the native artists that studied with him caused a renaissance and it was in full bloom by the 70s when I started getting interested and it was really a wonderful ride um, 
we, we were uh, encouraged by everybody, including the natives, to do our artwork. They could see that there was something really exciting going on. And so this is kind of mid to late 70s that you're, you moved back out from the uh, boonies? Uh, still in the boonies, but only a couple hours drive from Seattle. And yeah. Steve Brown, he, he was one of the first guys to carve seagoing canoes, mm. uh, copied from museum examples. And um, he's now probably carved more of them than anybody, any living artist. He got hired by a native tribe uh, at Nia Bay called, um, let's see, they're, they're way at the north uh, west corner of the Olympic Peninsula. He got hired by them to uh, carve a canoe there. And um, then he got hired by them to teach their uh, kids to carve canoes. And then he went to Alaska and carved canoes and he trained um, some professional carvers that are still carving canoes and it became a renaissance in seagoing uh, boats. And these were made to be boats. used? Yeah, they're, they, they're using them now. They have canoe uh, get-togethers where guys paddle all the way from Alaska to Seattle to meet other canoe makers uh -huh. and, oh, and hang out with them. So it's a real renaissance, an important part of their culture because that's um, how they made their living uh, trading with canoes and originally yeah yeah and so how so what was your next transformation once you get out of living in the cabin and you're grazing kids what were you doing have you started buying and selling indian artifacts at this point a little bit but um a huge thing happened um one of my best friends who was a scrim shander that i met at the public market his name was david present he came from New England, and he learned how to do scrimshaw from copying scrimshaw from the whalers from mm -hmm. the old days. Mm -hmm. He came to my house with one of his friends, and uh, Seattle kind of hit the skids when Boeing laid off like tens of thousands of employees. They had a bad downturn, and all of a sudden, all the Boeing engineers were doing arts and crafts and selling them <laughs> at the street fairs and right. us kids were like competing with you know professional engineers that were making really cool and tricky things at right. the street fairs and um uh david he he did very well as a scrimshander he commissioned me to um collaborate on some things and i made silver pieces to accommodate as scrimshaw pieces. Yeah, to attach to them or to yeah. ornate them. Yeah, and um, he had a solo show of that stuff, and it sold out like in one day. Mm. And he, he goes, oh, this is exciting. We need to do this some more. And and because of the uh, how competitive the arts and crafts industry in Seattle was, he took a ferry ride to Alaska, and he stopped at every town. In those days, you could get off the ferry and stay as long as you wanted and then catch the next one. So he spent the summer going town to town investigating the tourism industry and the art business. And he came back and he goes, I found this town. There's almost nobody there. And there's these cruise ships coming and bringing hundreds of people. Now there's tens of thousands of people mm -hmm. coming. But in those days, uh, it, he recognized it as a 
a land of opportunity and a real business opportunity. He said, I want you to come. I, he said, I rented a shop and I want you to come and be the resident artist for my shop. This so, is in Skagway? It's in Skagway, Alaska. Yeah. And um, he said, my shop, it's right between the two biggest hotels and we're going to get a lot of traffic and you're going to do really well. And uh, I said, well, Carl, I'm really busy and I really, I really enjoy my life on Whidbey Island. And I, I wasn't convinced. And then he, um, he worked on me some more and he tucked me into going. And um, he was a little frustrated because I didn't want to come at the beginning of the season. I had a big garden. I just planted a half acre garden and mm -hmm. wanted to see the garden through. <laughs> so I came in mid-August, which is really the end of the tourist season in those days. Now it goes until the end of September, but I, I only had like two weeks of tourist season left. And I, I brought like two-year production of silver work. Um, and I thought, you know, this, this should be a good test. See if I can make a go of this. And he got real excited. He put my work in the front cabinet. As you walk in the door, you walk right into the cabinet with my work in it. And we sold out of two years of production in one weekend. Oh, my. And I go, whoa, I, I was living on $1,500 a year on Whidbey Island. All of a sudden, <laughs> I made more made twice that in one weekend. And I go, I think I have a new home now. <laughs> and I, I, it took a while to get talk my wife into coming up there the the next year and i'm sure we moved up there and it was a primitive lifestyle but very successful financially when you say primitive was it like the cabin you lived in without running water it was one step up we had running water yeah <laughs> but it, it was pretty small and we were in what was the suburbs then we were really in the woods which yeah. was at 15th now it's about midtown because skagway's become major uh, destination. So when you go there, what year was that? Uh, that was in 84. And, and so your kids are kind of middle school? Uh, yeah, they were grade school and middle school, yeah. How did they, how did they uh, uh, do there? Because that's a whole different environment, right? Yeah, the, what, what we did um, there was not unlike Whidbey Island, except that... Um, yeah, there's there was no town to go to um, a couple hours away, so we didn't have the contact with our families mm -hmm. and and uh, shopping opportunities. And the nice thing about Whidbey Island, you could go to Seattle on a ferry boat and and have access to anything you could dream of. But when when we moved to Skagway, we were really you know. At, at the end of the earth. We used to consider it a joke when people would come off the cruise ship and say, what, what would your kids do and where would they go to school if you lived in the outback? And mm -hmm. my answer always was, well, if this isn't the outback, I don't want to know where it is. <laughs> so it, it was it was pretty primitive. In would you stay the whole year or would you just do the summer and then escape back down? I figured out by the middle of September I wasn't a winter Alaskan resident, and yeah. we would go down to Seattle in the winter. So the kids would go back to school there then? Yeah, uh, they started school um, uh, one year, and we realized the quality of uh, the schools weren't up to our our standards. Yeah, That was around the same time that we discovered Tucson. 
Hmm. So we started spending winters in Tucson uh, not soon after we discovered Alaska. So I've been coming as a snowbird here. And my- That my was the 80s? Yeah, uh, late 80s. And, and my, um, my kids were lucky enough, I found out from a native artist's wife that you could uh, get in a program called Gifted and Talented Education. And uh, my kids got in that program, and they became overachievers, um, uh, even beyond my wildest dreams. And um, they've done really well. So my son is now a railroad engineer in Skagway, which is kind of the top of the pecking order in the mm-hmm. small town that's based on historic rail. Mm-hmm. And my daughter now um, designs websites for Stanford University. Uh, do they like Indian art? They love Indian art, especially my son. He he figured out um, in recent years that he better start collecting some of my things and some of the things I was interested in. And um, he he's getting a collection of, of his own, of both my artwork and his mother's artwork. And my daughter being... Uh, uh, you know, interested in the internet and and education and computers and stuff, hasn't really collected too much um, uh, physical art, but she's real interested in um, the future of electronics and and computers and the internet. So she she's kind of gone on her own, yeah, way we'll way beyond my wildest <laughs> dreams. So you're up there in the '80s in yeah. Skagway, and you come up for every summer and you're making your own, you're working with this guy in his store, right? And you're making your own silversmith, right? You're doing your own silver stuff, right? right? Right. And then at some point you must get your own store and, or something changes. And you also start dealing in native arts. When was that? And what was that all about? Yeah, this is, this is a fun story because about three years in, we realized, uh, David, the gallery owner, he, um, had uh, about a dozen resident artists by then. He was doing really well. And he was descended from uh, a diamond family from Rochester, New York. And his father used to come and say, oh, you guys are doing really well. And I said, oh, thank you. And he said, yeah, and you even have growth. And I didn't even know what that meant, but he (laughs) meant economically. He could see we were growing leaps and bounds. Right, And... um, one of the other artists, he was an ivory jewelry artist uh, named Jim Hopkins. He, At the end of the third season, he came over. He said, by the way, there's this little shop a couple blocks up the street. I just got offered, offered it by the landlady because Princess Tours had their office in there, and they never paid their rent. So the, <laughs> the biggest companies, they, they could get away with um, right postponing payments and stuff uh, because the town was so isolated they didn't they, there was no recourse if that ever happened so anyway uh he said you want to share that shop and i went to look at it and we decided the same day that we were taking that shop and um david and his wife were somewhat aggravated with us but we opened our own shop and um I was already collecting native art and I had a history of it in my family and and I found it really fascinating. Um, for some odd reason, I think it's because in the early days, uh, 
gold mining towns and the gold rush towns um, didn't have very many native people. I, my theory is when the stampeders came to southeast Alaska, the natives headed for the hills. And uh, it's, it's fascinating that some of the clans, of the Clinket clans, like for instance, the Killerwell clan, we call them Duklawady, um, they have more members in the Yukon than they do on the coast mm. because they, they said, whoa, these guys are crazy. Let's get out of here. And there wasn't too many Native people in Skagway when I started getting interested in opening my shop. And um, I had one of the first Native art shops. We have tourists coming by the boatload interested in collecting things from Alaska. And I had one of the first shops selling Native art and some native elders came in and they said, oh, wow, so you're going to teach us about our culture, huh? And I said, well, you might be surprised. And, and they decided they liked me after a couple of weeks. And um, some of the really important ones started coming in and giving me advice and, and introducing me to their uncles and professional artists from their community. And um, I became a success, real success story right away uh, within months of opening my shop. And and one of the things I miss the most about having a shop is on the weekends when elders used to come in and bring their things. They would drive all the way from Whitehorse and the Yukon to sell me some artwork and then have uh, halibut fish and chips at the local restaurant. Mm -hmm. So their, their whole uh, mission was just to raise enough money to pay for the gas and have lunch. And <laughs> I, I could, uh, I could, make them happy every weekend. And I, I miss when they used to come in and sell me their artwork. And what kind of artwork is this? Well, the women, uh, you know, Native Alaskan um, artwork is real um, gender-related mostly. And the women did primarily uh, hide work with beads, bead sewing, mm -hmm. lots of costumes. Um, the interior people, even in historic times, were famous for doing the the costumes and would the these, regalia. Would these be out of seal skins and things like that? or uh, They use mostly hometown moose. Moose. Yeah, mm. the people in the interior. The people on the coast did uh, marine mammals. Mm -hmm. And they brought me things. And then the, the men mostly did wood carving. Uh, some of them were silversmiths. Mm -hmm. um, mostly that was, uh, it, it took a lot of work to learn how to do those bracelets like Bill Reed and Robert Davidson yeah. did. So they, they mostly carved masks and other regalia. And were they were you dealing in older material too at this point in time? Were you getting any of that or was it all contemporary native? Sometimes we we were offered uh, historic things and that was always really exciting. And they they knew that we would show the things respect. Sometimes it was because they had reached a difficult Point and they needed to raise money. And sometimes it was stuff they inherited. Traditionally, the in the 19th century, the uh, material culture, which was 99% wood objects, were left on the graves to disintegrate. Mm -hmm. But um, when the things, when they started finding out that their things were worth thousands of dollars, they started bringing them around more and and they, they really liked that I would show show them respect and pay them a fair price because most of the traders in the small towns in, in Alaska uh, could 
pretty easily take advantage of them because most of the people didn't realize how valuable their mm-hmm. their family objects were. And they had no outlet either, and there was no internet. Yeah. So um, within a few years, there was uh, quite a few people that were trying to sell Indian art in Skagway. And now it's gotten to the point where the diamond merchandisers that followed the cruise ship industry have mostly taken over the town and the local shops can't afford the leases. So there's not too many local shops anymore. Do you still have yours? No, I retired from retail when um, my rent went from 17000 a year to 125000 a year. Oh, my God. For a small shop that was previously a barber shop. And how much was it when you first started? Uh, Seventeen thousand a year for uh, when you shop. very first started. Yeah, and so um, it was still kind of expensive even then. When you first started back in the eighties, it was seventeen thousand. Yeah, for a shack, it was pretty expensive. But um, now I wish I would have bought it. I could have bought it for twenty five thousand or something, and now <laughs> it's worth a hundred thousand or something. Yeah. So, and so you're so you have this shop. You open it in the is it in the late eighties that when your shop. You and this other guy? Yeah, the just after the mid-'80s, and it became really successful by the late-'80s and the early-'90s. And did he stay as a partner the whole time? Yeah, he, he was an interesting guy because he was one of those people that really liked starting things and getting them going and then moving on and starting something else. Well, he, he saw that um, my native art business was uh, clearly going to take over the shop the shop and the space and i don't think he was discouraged but he decided that he was tired of of uh, watching me make more money than him and he went to juno and he opened a big gallery in juno and he became real successful down there so that that often happened because uh, the small towns really had a finite opportunity and if you really wanted to do good you could go to a big town that had 10 times as many boats or Mm. 10 times as many visitors. And he opened a shop, not unlike ours, but a lot bigger with a lot wider variety of things. And he became really good. And after about three years, he sold that. So Mm. he's been starting things and selling them and starting things and selling them. And he became eventually uh, very successful. And he recently retired and bought a home um, on the water near Bellingham, Washington, Uh I think he's getting bored there already. He's not really well what, suited what for retirement. Uh, Jim Hopkins. Uh-huh, Jim Hopkins. And he was dealing in, so he started dealing in Native American art as well. Yeah, he learned the ropes from me and went off and did yeah. his own version. Yes. So. And so you're in Skagway and you're, you're selling contemporary and historic material when they bring it in. Now, there's a whole group of uh, Native artists that collect these ivory pieces that are, you know, 1,000-year-old, 500-year-old. Tell me a little bit about that business and what's gone on with that and how that's changed dramatically. Maybe I can explain it from from my experience because I never imagined when I went there that I was going to become a a major Eskimo trader. But um, a friend of mine who used to come to Skagway to sell uh, raw materials to carvers and artists. He was a retired fish and game agent, mm-hmm. and he knew where to go in every corner of Alaska and collect the raw materials. 
and he had a small plane like a Piper Cub with giant tires and he could land on gravel bars and he knew where he could go land on the north slope on gravel bars and where he said that some percentage of the rocks and gravel on these gravel bars were fossils from the Ice Age. Hmm. And he had uh, he had quite a bit of raw material and we got really into working with that stuff and that became even more important than the silver work, uh, both for my previous boss and myself and Jim Hopkins, he made beads and jewelry out of it. Would this be like mastodon tusks? And... Primarily mammoth and mastodon. Uh-huh. About 90% of the remains are mammoth and about 10% are mastodon, but that we, we use the name interchangeably. We didn't know the difference. What and, is the difference? Oh, uh, mastodons are earlier and their tusks are shaped a little different and they have a tighter grain and it, it's real real desirable now because it's uh, has more stability than mammoth. Mammoth tends to dry out and crack and fall apart after you get it out of the river or out of the ground. So we really like Macedon, but it's hard to get. And how old are these these uh, tusks? Ten to twenty thousand years old. And they have a brown hue to them at this point. Sometimes it d- depends what they laid in. Sometimes they were frozen in the permafrost and they didn't get mineralized very much. And I've actually seen some that looks almost like elephant ivory, which leads to some confusion because obviously um, customers off the cruise ships can't tell the difference. But um, a lot of it is heavily mineralized, and our favorite was the most colorful. And the, the most exotic was the ones that were chocolate-colored with blue highlights because mm. there's a mineral called vivianite. We used to think it was a copper mineral that colored the mammoth ivory blue. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it was actually an iron mineral. I looked it up in Dana's uh, gemological dictionary and I found out it was an iron mineral that causes mammoth ivory and other fossils from from the permafrost to um, stain blue. Mm-hmm. There's a real famous example of a bison, Ice Age bison at the University of Alaska called Blue Babe where a whole mummified bison turned blue. Mm. And it's mm-hmm. it's something that fossil collectors like to go and and get excited about. Uh-huh. It's uh, unbelievable to see something like that. But we started finding uh, sources and locations um, for the most exotic colors. And then that was really nice for making jewelry, mm-hmm. chocolate and blue ivory, naturally. So this guy would go find it. He was an ex-game, uh, uh, fishing game, and he would get the material and you would give it to the to the artist to, or sell it to the artist or trade it? We did a lot of our own and we sold and traded it. And then um, a real huge breakthrough happened for me. He was getting ready to retire from that business. Um, he had, we, we thought that we, for our whole career, we thought we were gonna run out of this stuff in a couple of years. And I used to worry about that now that we've, invented this industry working with this stuff that we were going to run out of it. Mm-hmm. And so I went to visit him at his home in Fairbanks, Alaska, and he said, oh, don't worry about that. And he took me out in the backyard and he opened this tool shed. It's like a tough shed mm-hmm. in the backyard. And he opened the door and it looked like it was full of cordwood. 
<laughs> and all of a sudden I realized it was, the whole thing was completely full of um, mammoth tusks cut up into chunks a couple feet long. <laughs> and uh, then I quit worrying about running out of ivory. And I bought a bunch from him and I encouraged him to bring more to Skagway. And we kind of started a whole generation of younger people that were like our kids' age working on that stuff. And some of them have become real successful. But a really big deal happened when he invited me to visit St. Lawrence Island, which is this um, big island in the middle of the Bering Straits, mm -hmm. uh, closer to Russia than to Alaska. And you fly there via Nome. And there was two uh, villages there. And they had nothing to do except for hunt and fish and carve things. And they had access to their version of fossil materials, which was mostly fossil marine mammal materials and fossil walrus ivory, but also um, Ice Age materials. And they were already national class artists from doing this stuff. There was only a couple of guys that even knew about them, and they were becoming very successful marketing their work to the same sort of galleries that were marketing soapstone sculpture from Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, they were really excited when we came because Roland, the, the retired fish and game agent, he said, now you don't even wanna go to this island if you don't bring $10,000 to buy stuff because when you run out of money, they're gonna get really frustrated and angry with you and run you off. <laughs> and uh, so I came with $10,000 and he came with $10,000 and we spent all our money in less than two days and, and got on the next plane out of Dodge <laughs> because uh, they, 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 do re they really count on you um, helping everybody. And that grew, um, Roland, retired from that business, he retired, he, he had a state uh, retirement and he lived comfortably. He did it mostly as a hobby. And I started going a couple times a year and we got to the point where we were spending $50,000 per trip and, and everybody was really excited when we would show up and they would really treat us like family. And, and you were buying all the carvings that they were doing? Yeah, we were buying, at that point, we were buying everything they brought, which they really liked. It didn't matter if it was some broken thing their kid made. I, I just bought everything. Yes. And um, and then there was a point where it became too much. I had to start editorializing and giving them advice and stuff. And that was a little more difficult because they liked it better when we just bought anything <laughs> they brought in. Uh, it was a really good run, and I got really well known for that, both in the native community and in the in the art business. I was able to generate enough artwork uh, from them to supply other shops. Mm. And were you were they also bringing in uh, early Bering Strait type of material that they were finding? Yeah, they figured out early on that the things that they could dig up in their yard were worth a lot more than the raw material. Mm -hmm. um, they could they could make thousands of dollars digging up old tusks, but um, they started finding out that old Bering Sea culture artifacts and stuff um, were selling in New York. Uh, Jeffrey Myers was one of the guys that pioneered that mm -hmm. industry. He would fly out to those villages, not even get out of the plane and just wait for them to bring him some things. And he would pay 
tens of thousands of dollars for um, old bearing seat culture dolls and engraved artifacts and and there was stuff. no re and there's no um, regulation or problem doing this right for them. Uh, anything that they dug up on their private land was theirs, and they could do what they wanted with it. And they're grandfathered into the Marine Mammal Act, so they could work with fresh materials too. And they can't sell the fresh materials in the raw, but if they do traditional crafts out of it, they could market the crafts. So that was one of the reasons they had so much artwork for sale, because their um, lifestyle is living on hunting and fishing. Mm -hmm. And um, the only things they have to hunt are um, marine mammals. With with one exception, they, they brought some reindeer from Siberia, and they have a herd of reindeer. So they have a few antlers to carve, and, mm -hmm. and they hunt reindeer in the winter when the marine mammals are, are, are frozen out from being able to come to their area. So how has this changed now with this? Because the laws have changed recently to really kind of outlaw all ivory, including marine uh, ivory, right? Yeah, the the interesting thing is um, that um, not too many people, including the powers that be, really understand the regulations. They're real complicated, and you almost have to be a scholar of... Uh, of the fossils and the native culture to understand how it works. But natives can still sell things they make themselves, but um, it's becoming um, almost impossible to trade in the raw materials. And a big thing happened a few years ago when a, a federal act was enacted called um, the... Um, Paleontological Resources Protection Act. And it suddenly became illegal for anybody to collect any fossils from federal lands for any reason, even education. And that, that was horrible for um, the non-natives that were trading in the material. But it was tough for the natives, too, because suddenly they had to be able to prove where they found the material, because 90% of Alaska is owned by the federal government. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the villages uh, are adjacent national parks, and the uh, feds wanted to know if um, they were collecting artifacts in national parks. And in some cases, people were. So there was people that were taking advantage of their right to trade in things to dig and collect things anywhere they wanted. Uh, St. Lawrence Island became known by fish and wildlife and people in the industry as being really the only safe place to buy and trade because they, it's an interesting history because when um, the U.S. government decided they wanted to build the pipeline for the oil industry, mm -hmm. um, they did uh, a native land claim settlement. But the Eskimos in the Bering Sea, they, they didn't really benefit from that. And they, they said, well, we don't want to sign this thing. You know, every time we sign something, you guys cause trouble for us. Mm -hmm. And they never signed the land claim settlement. So their, their tribal government uh, privately owns their island. 
and so the feds know that the things that come from there are are the really the only legal source but it became as the pressure mounted on gaining control over the fossils from Alaska and and they became illegal from almost any other location uh, it became really difficult for the natives to prove where they were getting their things. So now they're under enormous pressure. And um, some agents follow me there, and they they got in the business of causing trouble for all those guys. So it's gotten to the point now where um, the native carvers that work in, in ivory and bone are having a hard time um, pursuing their market because nobody really knows what the rules are, including the, as, as we talked about the other day, the law enforcement d doesn't really know the regulations and don't really care. They're just trying to shut it down. And they've done that, I assume. Yeah, it's, it's really close to being over. And um, it's sad. Uh, they can still sell, the, the one thing they can do really well at, they can still sell the excavated artifacts. Mm. But um, because of the demand in New York, and another thing that really affected the trade for them was when Internet came to the most remote corners of the world. Mm -hmm. the, and they all have uh, email in their homes and at their school, and they can see the prices of right. Akvik dolls um, in New York at the, at the um, auctions. And now when you go and visit them and, and they have these uh, beautiful thousand-year-old artifacts for sale. It's like, used to be able to say, well, how much do you want for this? And they'd say, oh, three, $400 or something. And, and you knew that you could pay their asking price and there wasn't going to be a problem to at least get your money back. Well, now, if you ask them about a, a bear effigy or an octopic doll, that's really a beautiful artifact you found. How much do you want for that? Oh, 30,000 or oh, 50,000. They're, they're very optimistic at what, what they might bring. So it's really hard to even pay for the flight to go out there now. And do they, are they able to sell them themselves? Are they able to make a market by selling it? Well, um, they've figured out how to consign to the auctions back east. And, and they, the, there's uh, entrepreneurs in the villages, uh, native entrepreneurs that have figured out how to middle that industry. And, and they've done quite well um, for themselves. And I don't know how much of it trickles down, but there's some real successful entrepreneurs in the villages. Jeffrey Myers used to go um, regularly. He would make a trip just for one item, mm. you know, all the way from New York if it was something he wanted or he had a customer for. So, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's gotten uh, more and more difficult, and it's getting difficult for them to sell because there's almost nobody coming out there anymore when, when, when they want as much as the auction houses back east. Yeah, so they can't wholesale it anymore. They have to, well, they can't wholesale it to a dealer. They ha they have, they're basically wholesaling it to the auction house to sell. Yeah, they basically made the middlemen obsolete. And mm -hmm. um, I, I only go um, just to visit family, friends, and stuff now. And has the, with all the changes in the laws with ivory, has that market as well, price-wise, gone down? 
uh, it leveled off and um, and they're collecting less because they're having a harder time selling it because there's fewer people coming out and, and buying it from them. Mm -hmm. There was a point when there might have been 50 entrepreneurs coming every summer buying everything they could get their hands on. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was um, now they, they're down to only two or three guys. I was one of the last guys, one of the biggest guys who who actually started that industry by, he, he worked for um, uh, State uh, Roads mm -hmm. Department, and he was all over the state. Um, he realized there was uh, opportunity for a middleman. He kind of pioneered that industry, going to the villages and buying these raw materials. So he just got harassed enough by the feds to, to not go. It's the first time in the 40 years I've known him that he did didn't actually go and buy this year mm -hmm. because they're um, they're putting the screws to him now too. Yeah, they just want the complete stop of selling yeah, this material. That's right. Their mission is to totally shut it down. Um, they don't seem to be at all concerned about the welfare of the native people, and and the native people are are really at risk now, and I worry about them. Even the you know, the native corporation owns the grocery stores in the villages, and there's times when they don't do enough business to even be able to stock. I've been I've been on St. Lawrence Island when the only thing in the grocery store was uh, diapers and cigarettes mm. and stuff like that. So they've had to go back to um, hunting and fishing um, primarily for their livelihood. And um, as we were talking about the other day, I, I actually worry a lot about the young people because um, they see what young people do in the rest of the world on the internet and they, they want to move to the city and wear spandex and go to the disco. And very few of them have learned traditional hunting and gathering or food preparation. Mm -hmm. And it's it's the same problem in Southeast Alaska where the the Clinkets and the Haidas live where uh, very few people are are learning traditional hunting and gathering um, and, and food preparation. The really wonderful thing about the Clinkets and Haidas is they were good entrepreneurs from way back all the way to the fur trade. Mm -hmm. they, they middled the fur trade and they learned how to be businessmen. And um, they've, they saw this coming and their native corporations who have been real successful by middling the fishing industry and the logging industry, they have very deep pockets. They now have um, what we call Indian children uh, culture camps. And the grandparents who grew up at a time when they lived traditional lifestyle and hunted and fished um, are teaching the grandkids how to hunt and fish and prepare traditional mm -hmm. native food. There's a whole generation in the middle that were the ones that um, were forbidden from speaking the language or doing their traditional uh, material culture. Right. Uh, a lot of those probably went to Indian schools too. Yeah, and in in um, the good thing was is as they did have lawyers and doctors and stuff that learn, um, you know modern uh, lifestyle uh, by going to schools in, in other parts of the country. There, there's some really great examples of early lawyers and early matriarchs that 
went away to Indian school in Bellingham and Washington State and other places that came back and were able to help the um, family businesses and the tribal businesses um, become very successful. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the Eskimo, the Eskimo corporations that were set up at the time of um, the land claim settlements, um, they didn't have those skills, and their their um, tribal um, corporations failed um, within a generation. But um, some of the successful ones are are really successful. Good example of Sea Alaska Corporation, Clinkett uh, Haida. They um, they've invested in the cruise ships. They own the best hotels, and it's not uncommon to see them in line at the bank. Whereas um, a uh, lot of the native people from from the um, remote areas, they can't even take a check because they don't know what to do with it. Mm. So it's, so it's a real dual system. Yeah, it's, some people have have thrived, but a lot of people in the remote areas, and there's thousands of uh, what we call Eskimo villages. They're Inupat and Yupik villages where um, they don't have access to. Uh, financial institutions, and and they're lucky if they can cash a check at the grocery store. Do they have internet up in those areas? They do. All of them have internet now, and they're starting to figure it out. I just recently bought an artifact on the internet from uh, a native kid who found a beautiful harpoon head um, by PayPal. He yeah. he figured out about PayPal. He got paid like in. 30 seconds, and then he mailed me the thing. So yeah. I'm waiting excitedly to see what he found. Yeah, but you do see a change um, with the natives' um, culture just because they can't deal effectively with any of these materials. They can't get the material, or if they can, it's hard to prove it is. And do you see that maybe literally going away? Yes, uh, I, I think I mentioned it briefly in the past, but what I'm really worried about is the people that live in the remote villages are moving to the cities. Um, they're not well educated for having jobs in Western society. Uh, a lot of the kids are turning into street people. Um, it's there's statistics that really give you an idea how how critical it is. Um, Native Alaskans have something like two or three times the the suicide rate of any other kids in the country, and um, they they're kind of lost. And I see these kids I knew in the villages. I see them on streets in the city, living as homeless street people mm. and begging, and and I. You know, we used to go around and, and when they were begging and say, you know, if you want to go home, I'll buy your ticket to go home. One time I even had to send the mayor of Gamble home because he stayed in the bar too long and drank up all his money, couldn't afford to fly home. But, um, yeah, there's a whole generation of kids that don't know traditional lifestyle and are really struggling um, in the cities and they're going to be the next generation of homeless people. I can imagine a time not so far in the future when the elders are gone, when that culture is really gone as we know it. Mm. It's it's a. Is there any um, way to stop that? Is there any? 
Well, I, I, I try in my own little way to encourage them and to buy things from them. Um, I don't really know what it's going to take on the big picture. Uh, probably it's going to take government intervention. They're starting to get more funding for medical clinics and and facilities in the villages because until recently they had to fly to Nome even mm. for medical care. Mm. Um, it's funny, uh, the government will give them their ticket to go to the hospital and they'll give them a ticket to come home from the hospital. But if they miss their flight, they're on their own. Mm. So often what happens, that's what happened to the mayor, I think, um, went to the hospital, he went to the bar, uh, drinking some beer, missed his flight, and then he got stuck there. He was stuck there for days. Mm. And um, I bought him a ticket to get home. Uh, that really paid off for me because I got stranded uh, the same year I got stranded on their island. Mm -hmm. And uh, the weather was so bad, the planes couldn't fly. And, and I had just spent my last dollar. And mm -hmm. um, the word got around town that I was out of money and I was stranded there. And they were starting, there was people that were going, you know, why are you still here? And stuff like that. But the mayor came over, he said, you know, you, you helped me out that time. I really appreciate that. You, you can stay on our credit at the uh, tribal um, the tribal housing for as long as you have to and then pay us later. Yeah. So he <laughs> gave me a line of credit with the, <laughs> the tribal corporation and yeah. I lived real comfortably, but the people that were selling stuff, they couldn't figure out why I was still hanging around or right. beachcombing. They wanted to see what was in my bag because they were afraid I was picking up ivory. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. that's her livelihood. Yeah. yeah. And how long did you stay there for that? I think I got stuck for three days. That's the longest I've been stuck. It's a common problem in Alaska to get stuck. I've I've been stuck in Juneau for three days. So. Yeah. But uh, that these, was a little hair-raising. These are little villages, too. There's not many people, right? A couple hundred people. Yeah, so everybody knows everybody. Yeah, they all know me. They They know the buyers, of course. Yes. We stand out, you know, even if I wear their clothes, they can recognize me from a mile away. <laughs> I'm sure they can. Yeah. So you've gone through this life and you're still interested in native arts, I assume, right? You still deal in it? I'm fascinated by it. It's it's a compulsion I'll probably never outgrow and I'm still collecting things and I'm marketing less, but I, I really enjoy it. And, and I'm trying... Uh, it's it's my mission with um, the success I've had to try to almost do, I think I mentioned I trying to do philanthropic uh, things to help them. I've sent kids to university um, and uh, it's it's been some some real success stories. Some of some of the kids um, are brilliant and they just needed an opportunity. Sure. There's a really good example of an Eskimo kid. Grew up in Haines, Alaska. His father was a carver, and um, he was a straight-A student. And he was the first Native Alaskan to get a full scholarship to Stanford University. Wow. And now he works for Google Maps or something uh -huh. and lives happily in Seattle. So. And if people want to get a hold of you, how do they find you, Terry? Uh, I'm, I'm on the Internet um, under Inside Passage Arts. And um, my biggest um, buying and selling uh, venue now is at the trade shows here, uh, what, what we call the 
Tucson gym shows. Mm-hmm. And um, I've pretty much gotten out of um, running shops and being readily available to people year round because um, I'm mostly retired now. But um, people do bring me really cool stuff to the gym shows. Mm-hmm. And and you'd be surprised. People come all the way from Alaska to sell us stuff. Yeah, <laughs> in uh, Tucson. Yeah, and Alaska Airlines has uh, been a real uh, good thing for them because um, you can get on a plane in Anchorage and and fly all the way to Tucson. Correct. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you have to, uh, they stop in Seattle because yeah. that's their hub. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I encourage them to come down. I put them up when they come and visit us. I had a native girl stay with us for a month. She almost forgot to go home. She liked <laughs> Tucson so much. She wanted to bring her parents down yeah. here. Uh, well. <laughs> it's pretty good weather compared to Alaska in the winter. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Well, Terry, it's been great having you on. And people, I encourage you, if you're out of the Jim and Mineral Show, go look for Terry. Thank uh, you. And uh, Or online at his, at his uh, website. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed working with you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's been, it's, it's, you know, just getting to find out the backstory is always so interesting to me. I mean, I know you're 40 years, but, yeah. I, you know, you don't know. You don't, the problem is we don't take the time in yeah. our busy lives to sit down and talk to other people. Yeah, you know, and ask the questions. Uh, how did you get where you got, and why? Yeah. And to me, that's always the most interesting part of doing it. And one of the reasons I do these podcasts is so I can force myself, if nothing else, to take the time to really understand my own community. It's really exciting that we're at this stage of our careers where we can start to investigate the background stories and 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 in my case, uh, I'm studying the culture. I was always into the material culture. Now I'm starting to realize how important the belief system is and now i've been adopted by native family and i i i'm learning more about that i'm trying to contribute in my own way yeah good for you we'll keep doing it terry thank you very much williams thank you very much my pleasure mark it's it's great to see you (laughs) terry williams art dealer diaries thank you that was fun yeah it's fun to tell the story i love talking